Hello everyone and welcome to A Biological Revolution. I'm Jeff McFadden. The Biological Revolution is a, a plan, a complete and consistent plan, to uh, halt and reverse the effects of global warming on planet Earth. It is uh, radically different from the normal uh, plans, but I believe it to be the only one that would actually work. Since humanity has been what we call Homo sapiens, man-wise, which I think is a dubious name, but we use it, we've had three great revolutions in society, assuming that all three of them really happened. The first was the cognitive revolution. It is not known for certain that this happened, but it is a reasonably widely accepted theory that some 50,000 years ago, the way humanity thought, the way Homo sapiens thought, underwent a revolution, a drastic change, and that we began to think in terms of abstraction. And as a result of that, we had to develop a more complex language. And that everything that we are now is more directly driven by the cognitive revolution than by simple evolution which brought us from another great ape through the various Homo species, the Astropithecus species, up through Homo erectus, Homo habilis, and Homo sapiens. The cognitive revolution is, there's dispute, that theory is not, not universally accepted, but it's widely accepted. Personally, I don't accept it. And the, the uh, evidence for it is so long ago and so vague that it, it's really not easily proven or disproven. It's simply a theory which exists. Um, but I'm going to leave it here because it's useful for viewing how we have developed since our last major evolutionary step when we became Homo sapiens. If, assuming we did have a cognitive revolution, then some 40,000 years later, we had an agricultural revolution. And this too is believed to have been rather abrupt, that humankind in our small numbers, having originally evolved in Africa and not yet distributed ourselves across the globe in large numbers, developed the technology of encouraging annual plants to grow, harvesting their seeds, storing their seeds, and remaining roughly in one place over time. Hunter-gatherers are, by necessity, permanently nomadic. You hunt today and gather today where you are and you move to another place on foot and you continue to hunt and gather and you continue to move. Presumably individual bands had limited ranges which they circled through, but hunter-gatherer societies, fully hunter-gatherer societies, are by nature fully nomadic societies. You have to go where the food is, you eat what's here, and then you go someplace else and you eat what's there and you move on. When we invented agriculture, we invented 
uh, fixed residences. And as a direct result of that came cities. And the term civilization actually means of cities. So when humankind developed agriculture and stopped moving, started building permanent houses, we it automatically evolved into towns and cities. The more houses there are together, the more you call it a city. So we did that. And long in that same period with the agricultural revolution, we domesticated animals. Of course, the dog is, is separate from this list. The dog signed up with us long, long ago, far, far before any other animal. The dog has been trotting alongside humankind, chasing our game and defending us against predators and other problems and living off our scraps and our waste and being our friend for a long, 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 long time. But sometime along about the time of the agricultural revolution, which was six to 10,000 years ago, depending on what you want to call the beginning point, we also began first to domesticate food animals. We were hunter-gatherers. That is to say, we hunted and ate uh, megafauna, big animals, and we gathered greens, fruits, roots, and other available things to eat from that grew uh, fixed to the ground. And we were able to persuade the goat, the sheep, the cow, cattle, and all their kin, the yak and the water buffalo, and all those which are, although not necessarily species, uh, similar to cattle. They all are big, slow grazers with multiple stomachs and cloven hoofs who live in water or in, in rich ground where there's often a lot of water. The cloven hoofs support them in the mud. When they step in the mud, the cloven hoofs separate and the, spread the pressure wider and so they don't sink out of sight. And so we got those animals to stay with us, stay around us, let us feed them, let us breed them, and let, for want of a better word, us kill and eat a certain number of them. Um, we don't know for sure when work animals started working for us because we had developed genus boss, the, the, the cattle, into a, an animal that would that would we could eat and that we could milk. They also are work stock. Animal, cattle have long worked for humans. So we don't know for sure when they began to work for us. But we do know that in a, a second wave of domestication, we know domesticated the horse, the donkey, and the camel. Uh, if there are others, I can't think of them right off specifically for the purpose of bearing our burdens. The first of those was the donkey. Uh, the African wild ass uh, lived in the deserts of, of Western and Southern Africa. Uh, and we were able to domesticate that animal to originally put burdens on 
their backs, which they would walk with us and bear the burdens. And later, it occurred to us that we could also have them pull burdens. So we had them pull wheeled vehicles and we had them pull plows, which were very rudimentary made out of sticks, but we were already stirring the surface of the soil. Our crops were all annual vegetable or annual grasses, almost without exception, annual grasses were our original agricultural crops. And they grow in disturbed soil. So the way that we invented agriculture was we discovered that we could disturb soil and annual grasses would grow. And then we figured out that we could disturb soil and plant particular annual seeds like wheat or barley and those grasses would grow. So humankind, our agricultural revolution was a, a, a revolution of disturbing the soil and raising annual grasses. We also had, you know, we, we soon discovered the wonderful grape so that we could make wine. There's a theory that the whole agricultural revolution had its roots in the discovery of beer because somebody put barley seeds in a tub and water in a jug and water got in it and it turned into beer and he said, I like this. I think I'll stay right here and grow more barley. Um, that's not a universally accepted theory, but I find it enjoyable, so I mention it from time to time. Um, for some reason, we did discover uh, annual grains. We discovered a few fruits, the fig and the, and the grape, and a few others that would grow at our nurturing, at our place, at our intention. And so we had the agricultural revolution. We were at the same time degrading our ecosystem, but there were so few of it, so few of us, that it didn't much matter, because when we farmed one place until it wouldn't grow plants anymore, and we picked up and we moved someplace else, a day's walk away, the first one would begin to heal. We didn't know how to restore fertility to the land. The agricultural revolution immediately resulted in larger populations of smaller people because we could grow more food, but it didn't take us long to start to suck the fertility and the trace nutrients out of the ground and to rely on a narrower diet of just these grass seeds instead of the wide range of things that we had hunted and gathered of which grass seeds were always a significant part. And so our individuals became smaller because we were less well-nourished, but our numbers became greater because we had a larger volume of admittedly less well-nourishing food. So we could feed more people and essentially food availability tends to be a limiting factor in populations. So we domesticated the animals, we domesticated the grains, we domesticated some of the fruits, we domesticated some of the vegetables, root vegetables, uh, parsley and carrots, and I don't know what all, because I don't know what grows naturally in Africa, which is where this all began. But at the same time, our populations were growing, we were spreading over a wider range of the planet. We had developed 
this relationship with animals to where they would carry our burdens and we could walk and we could cover and eventually did cover the whole planet with the exception of, of Antarctica itself. The southernmost of us lived in cold, wet, uh, near the Antarctic Circle uh, in South America and literally went naked because we could not survive the constant rain with clothes on. The northernmost of us were inside the Arctic Circle and dressed in furs because it wasn't rain, it was snow that fell. In between, we had people who were naked and we had people who were dressed. We had people who moved around. The, the people came from Africa, up through Asia, through Europe. You could do all that on foot. Then they spread through uh, northern Asia all the way to Alaska. Asian people came down from Alaska and through the Americas. You could do it all on foot because the uh, so much of the water was tied up in ice that the land showed between Asia and Alaska, and it was there was a walking path there. People also spread by boat. We don't know exactly how they figured out that they could sail to Australia or sail to the South Pacific, but they did. So we had had those revolutions, and with the things that we acquired in the industrial, I mean, in the agricultural revolution, we lived on about somewhere between six and 8,000 years. We had animals, we had grains, we developed ever finer tools, we developed ever finer skills, we learned how to make hay, we learned how to store food for our animals, we learned how to store food for ourselves. Somewhere along the line, somebody invented the horse collar, which meant that we could work the thin-skinned horse to pull our loads, and he could move fast, and he was strong, and he could work all day, unlike cattle, because cattle have to chew their cud. So when we were relying on cattle for our work, we could only plow about half a day, or haul our burdens about half a day, because the cattle absolutely must lay down and chew their cud in order to survive. That's how their digestional process works. Horses can work and digest at the same time. They're internally made differently. So when we invented the horse collar, human populations immediately shot up again because now we could make, once again, more food. We continued that for about 6,000 years, and as time passed. We learned many things. We learned to harness the wind and cross oceans. We learned to navigate across oceans so that we could know where we were in the open sea. We learned to do ever more amazing things with our animals. We learned we invented literature. We invented sciences. We invented theater. We invented painting. We discovered art. We discovered art clear back at the beginning. Art is part of us. Music is part of us. We've had harps for we don't know how long. We are these things. Technology is part of us. And from the very beginning, from before the agricultural revolution, 
from before Homo sapiens. We had technology. First, we made shaped rocks to do our wood for, work for us. We shaped wood to do our work for us. Then we shaped car, copper and we shaped bronze. We shaped iron and we shaped steel. And this evolution was going along parallel with the evolution in food production, which was coming through agriculture and animal power. And then after about 6,000 years and roughly two to three, 300 years ago, call it, we're in 400 years ago, we're in 2100 and, or 2000 and back in 1700, 300 years ago, we had what we call the Industrial Revolution. And that's the accepted name, but in an odd way, it's kind of a misnomer because industry is what people do. We researchers speak of the lithic industry of shaping stones into axes. So industry is to work. And we developed ever finer tools with which we could work. And our industrial abilities rose. We could form steel and all these other wonderful industrial things. But what we really had was we had the power source revolution. And it was among, above all else, the heat engine revolution. All the engines in your world, in your modern 21st century world are heat engines or they're electric motors. And electric motors are almost all, not quite all, but almost all at their source powered by heat engines. A heat engine is any engine which captures a working fluid at a high temperature and puts it through the engine on its way to a lower temperature and does work on the way. It is a basic law of energy and thermodynamics that energy spontaneously moves from places of high concentration to places of low concentration. So if you have heat in a place, it will spontaneously move to where there's less heat. It will spontaneously even out. Your beer gets warm and your pizza gets cold because the energy in the atmosphere spontaneously warms your beer and the energy in the pizza spontaneously warms the atmosphere. It automatically goes from higher concentrations to lower concentrations. And we discovered that we could take a working fluid, water, make it real hot and have it change itself into steam, at which point it has a lot of energy and we could put it in a cylinder with a piston and it would push that piston out of the way to escape into the cool of the atmosphere. And from that comes everything that we have today. Heat engines. Your automobile is a heat engine. You put gasoline into it. You set the gasoline on fire. The fire makes heat. You, the resultant hot gases become what's called a working fluid. They push pistons out of the way to get out of the tailpipe to where it's cooler. Jet planes are heat engines. You heat, you, you ignite petroleum fuels 
the hot gases become your working fluid, they go through a fan blade, which has to spin, which creates the jet process. And a combination of the energy of the fan blade and the energy of the moving heat itself moving towards the cooler place pushes your jet plane. Your electric generator, your coal-fired generator, is a heat engine. The coal makes heat, which you use to heat a working fluid, and you run that working fluid through turbines, fan blades, and the working fluid creates work, does work, and we use the work to drive generators. Nuclear power plants are heat engines. We just use a nuclear reaction to heat the working fluid, which is water, and we use it to drive turbines. So all of what we have that we think of as an industrial revolution is essentially a heat engine revolution. And the heat engine revolution directly resulted in an ongoing change in the makeup of the atmosphere because the only way we could get heat was by fire. And fire is a process by which hydrocarbons are combined with oxygen and result in heat, release heat from the hydrocarbons, and the oxygen and the carbons form together into CO2, and they go out into the atmosphere. But it doesn't matter if it's coal or gasoline or methane. Natural gas is methane. It doesn't matter if it's trees. It doesn't matter where you got the hydrocarbon. What you're doing is you're burning hydrocarbons. Coal, natural gas, and petroleum, the big three, are all fossil hydrocarbons. That is to say, the hydrogen and the carbon that was present on the Earth millennia ago combined into life, because that's what life is. Life is hydrogen, carbon, and, and nitrogen, and some odd stuff. And so the hydrogen and the carbon combined into life. They fell to the ground. They compacted and decomposed and became concentrated masses of either liquid or solid carbon and hydrogen. And that's or gaseous. And so we've got oil and we've got coal and we've got natural gas. But all three of them are the same thing. They are, they are hydrocarbons. Uh, and we oxidize those and we turn the carbon into CO2 and we turn it loose into the atmosphere. If we did that, if we had done the whole thing forever always with, with trees, if we'd never had any more heat engines than we could power with firewood without denuding our entire planet, we wouldn't have global warming because it's not the carbon, it's the old carbon. This carbon was captured out of the atmosphere millions of years ago and laid down, and it was captured over the course of millions of years. Millions and millions and millions of years of carbon have been released back into the atmosphere in the last 200 years, and particularly since World War II, because there was a magnitude leap of the use of heat engines at beginning with the 20th century, beginning with the automobile, beginning with the heavier-than-air flight, powered flight, there was a magnum leap of uh, 
the use of heat engines. I'm going to leave electricity aside here mostly, except to point out that almost all the electricity that we um, use is generated by heat engines. It's worth noting that all of these processes have degraded the earth on which we evolved and from which we are made. The obtaining the fossil fuels degrades the earth. Shipping the fossil fuels degrades the earth. Spilling the fossil fuels degrades the earth. And burning the fossil fuels degrades the atmosphere, which in result degrades the earth. So we have a situation where actually ever since the agricultural revolution, we have been consistently and continually degrading the ecosystem which supports us. Every place Homo sapiens has ever gone, the megafauna, the big animals, have gone extinct. We killed off all the horses and all the camels that were in North America when the Homo sapiens got here from Asia. And you can go around the world. We've always degraded the ecosystem. We've always drawn from the ecosystem, ever since the agricultural revolution, we have drawn from the ecosystem more than it can provide with current energy. The earth is a closed, roughly closed system. We get energy from the earth, I mean from the sun. It falls on the earth. We have a certain amount of energy inside the earth with our, our molten core. And those two energy sources power all the life on earth. And so, as we have expanded ourselves, we have degraded the ecosystem which made and supported us. But we did it, our numbers were small enough, and our speed of degradation was slow enough that we weren't facing an existential threat most places most of the time. And we had a lot of time which, with which we could have noticed what was going on and attempted to fix it until we invented the heat engine. Because what we got with the heat engine was we got very high speed, very high power, very high energy technology. We'd always had technology, but we got a whole different kind of technology. We could dig more earth, cut more trees, plow more ground. We could do things which we had never been able to do before with the biological power of our bodies and our animals that had gone with us. So the high-speed, high-energy technology that came from the so-called industrial revolution, the heat engine revolution, gave us the power to massively and rapidly degrade our ecosystem. And the two most obvious symptoms of that degradation are the accumulation of carbon in the atmosphere, which causes warming, and all of the violent weather and all of the 
symptoms that go with that warming are a problem right now today. We're, it's not something that might happen to us someday. We're living in it now, and we're finding that we don't like it. You know, when it rains 50 inches on Houston, that's a problem. When uh, all the snow melts and the ground in Nebraska and Iowa are still frozen, that's a problem. So we're living now with the problems of ecosystem degradation, which we perceive mostly as global warming. And we talk a lot about doing things to fix global warming, to stop worsening it. There is a very small amount of conversation about an actual attempt to reverse it, but mostly we talk about trying to stop worsening it. Unfortunately, there is a simultaneous parallel other symptom of our degradation of our ecosystem, and that is the fourth mass extinction in all of, or the sixth, I'm sorry, sixth mass extinction in all of geological time. The last mass extinction in geological time was when the asteroid hit the planet and filled the atmosphere with dust and all the dinosaurs died except the birds and the alligators. Um, the first mass extinction was when cyanobacteria invented uh, uh, solar energy food, invented photosynthesis, and their byproduct was oxygen. And when they were evolved here, almost the entire world, well, in fact, all of life on Earth was, was uh, uh, anoxic. It, it couldn't live on oxygen. And uh, so when the cyanobacteria came and they covered the earth, they absorbed solar power, and they made carbon, took carbon out of the atmosphere and put it in their bodies and their lives, and they exhausted oxygen because they were taking in CO2, breaking off the carbon part and letting the oxygen go back out. And that caused the first mass extinction. The asteroid caused the last mass extinction, and we're the next one. And there are to the best of my knowledge, and if I'm wrong, I would be I would welcome a correction. But to the best of my knowledge, there are no plans advocated to address global warming, which are also claimed to address mass extinction. We, uh, as far as I can tell, we have assumed or accepted that in order for us to be human it is inevitable that we must cause mass extinction of almost everything else. The bugs are going extinct. Bird species are going extinct. Animal species are going extinct. We don't know what's going on in the microbial world except that periodically a new one comes along that makes our lives harder. We have, we have chosen, uh, modern society has chosen to take the entire question of mass extinction and just push it off the table. We do not discuss mass extinction because all we have to worry about is global warming and all we have to worry about in global warming is carbon. I do not believe that that will work. We know for sure, this is not theoretical and it's not crazy. We know for sure that what takes carbon out of the atmosphere 
is living creatures. Our bodies are made of carbon. Our cattle are made of carbon. The plants are made of carbon. Everything alive is made of carbon. In fact, if you look up the word organic in the dictionary, you will see made of carbon. Carbon is what means organic. The carbon that we're spitting out of fossil fuels was once live critters. And so that's where that car, that's how that carbon got fixed. Now we're turning that carbon back into the atmosphere. At the same time, we're killing off almost everything alive that's not either a human being or a domestic animal. Now, I propose that we need our domestic animals, but that this is completely out of balance. I propose that, in fact, we cannot solve the issues of global warming. We cannot prevent the arrival of an uninhabitable planet through carbon accumulation in the atmosphere without nurturing the life of our living planet ecosystem in such a fashion that the additional carbon we have put into the atmosphere is extracted by life and fixed into the solid portions of the atmosphere, the solid or the, the world, the solid and liquid portions. Our world is all one thing. The atmosphere is part of it, the water's part of it, the dirt's part of it, we're part of it, the rocks are part of it, the molten. It's all one thing. The problem is not that we have the carbon. The problem is that we have the carbon in the wrong place. And that place is the atmosphere. And the reason that's a problem is because the solar energy never stops. It shines on us every day. And the carbon causes that solar energy to be trapped. And that trapped energy shows itself as temperature. But it's not just temperature. It's the motion of air. Higher winds are part of that energy. More water is in the atmosphere is part of that energy. We know that global warming as we recognize it is going to cause us problems with growing crops. We know that it's going to cause us problems with water. We know that it's going to cause us problems with virtually everything. Almost all advocated solutions for this problem are rooted firmly in high-speed, high-energy technology. And to advocate for an abandonment of that speed and energy is incorrectly seen as advocating for a cessation of technology. Our problem is not that we have technology. Our problem is that we have accepted and centralized our entire economies, societies, and lives around a high-speed, high-energy, large-scale technology which is killing everything else on Earth. And as a byproduct of that is causing the atmosphere to have more carbon in it and causing everything to get hotter. We know for sure 
that we could plant trees and capture carbon. We know for sure that we could plant perennial long stem prairie grasses and capture carbon. We know for sure that we could increase the microbial lives of soils and capture carbon. We know all these things absolutely for sure. The reason we can't do them is because we don't have any space for them left over after we finish operating our large-scale, high-speed, high-energy technology. And so we say instead, let's invent a high-speed, high-energy technological solution that will take carbon out of the earth and will turn it into money and will give people jobs. But the problem with that is, from where we are now, according to respectable scientists, we would need about a two million fold or by a factor of two million to increase our carbon, our carbon capture technology from where we are now. The same thing applies with uh, renewable energy. We have renewable energy, we have solar panels, we have wind things. But the scale that would be required to provide the degree of energy that we currently use is absurd on the face of it. No one says, how do we scale this up? We assume that we cannot be humans, we cannot be civilized, we cannot be advanced, we cannot progress without high-speed, high-energy, large-scale technology. This is false on the face of it. Shakespeare wrote in the 1600s, we're still performing his plays. We can be everything that we are and the finest of everything we've ever been. We can continue to advance. We can continue to learn with a completely biological, technological foundation. We can power everything that we need to do in on this earth with animals we already have them domesticated with wind there are still people left who know how to sail away a wind jammer with our own bodies we can study instead of ways to kill our earth we can study ways to nourish and garden our earth so that every place we go every human footprint can be recognized as more life. Right now, we are literally the society of death. From the roadkill on the roads to the invisible creatures that were never born because they went extinct when we cut down their, their habitat, we are living as agents of mass death. We don't have to. We choose to. We have defined things which we want as needs and things which we need as luxuries. This will not work. If we intend to go on as human beings, we must heal the ecosystem which created us. 
We cannot heal our ecosystem with high energy, high speed, large scale technology. Whether we make our heat engines or whether we spin propellers that are 200 feet long and that cover thousands of acres and kill millions of birds, we cannot heal our earth with high-speed technology. We know, this is not a theory, we know that the planet has on it, even still as degraded as it is, enough carbon-based life to absorb excess carbon out of the atmosphere. We have to do two things. We have to stop adding carbon and we have to stop killing everything else. Because without a living ecosystem, we cannot solve our problem. So this entire podcast is going to be talking about ways to rethink our economy, our societies, our cities, our farms, our international trade, that it can all be based, as it was for 6,000 years, on the power of biological life. Our muscles, the muscles of our horses, our donkeys, our camels, our cows, our bicycles. We can invent wonderful things without this high-speed, high-energy, massive death technology which we have accepted. It is a clearly a dead end. We know that we cannot do this forever. Greta Thunberg knows that we cannot do this until she's an old lady. We know that this isn't working. We have convinced ourselves that we can make another high-speed, high-energy, large-scale technology and cover the world with it and thereby save our problem. I propose to you that that is absurd on the face of it, that all advocations for high-energy technology are described as though all the solar panels already existed and all the windmills already existed and all the siting was already done, but none of that has happened. I further propose to you that none of those solutions address mass extinction and that we cannot live on a planet on which we have killed the rest of life. So I ask you to go along with me to ride this long ride. I don't know how long it will go. This podcast will begin all as monologues as this one that you've just listened to has. It will, uh, I can't see how it will evolve. It may come to pass that I find other people who agree with me with whom I can converse. Right now, today, I don't know where any are. Um, but I invite you to come along and see where we go and how we get there to consider just for a minute to think that all the other living creatures on our earth are as important to the earth and to its proper operation as we are and that without them the earth will 
not continue to support us over the long haul. Thank you.